There are more Russian-speaking Jews in New York than all of Jews in South America. There are more Russian-speaking Jews in New York than all of Jews in Canada. The organized American Jewish community is getting a sense of fatigue of trying to engage those who came from the former Soviet Union. And I think that's a big mistake. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I am Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish community at large. Along the way, we try to build a deeper sense of community by sharing our stories, getting to know the people and the leaders in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Our guest today is Ilya Salita, president and CEO of the Genesis Philanthropy Group, where he leads the foundation's efforts to engage and inspire young Jews around the world, build vibrant communities, support Jewish culture, and build bridges to ensure a robust Jewish future. In particular, the Genesis Philanthropy Group works to engage Russian-speaking Jewish communities, not exclusively, but primarily, and in the conversation, we will talk about why that particular aspect of their work is so important. Ilya is a fascinating guy with a vital perspective to share. He's also a great friend and an amazing travel companion. If you ever find yourself lost in Tbilisi, Georgia, Ilya is the guy that you need to know. Uh, he started his career in academia, in both Russia and the US. And then he had another career in business before moving into philanthropy. So he sees the world from a global perspective in multiple senses of that word. And I learned a lot from this conversation and from him in general. Let's get to it. Hi, Ilya, thank you for being here and for having this conversation. This is probably going to be a competition of accents. Let's see who wins. We can then shift at some point. You don't mind, I'll do yours. We can certainly give it a shot. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the history of the Genesis Philanthropy Group. Genesis Philanthropy Group was launched in 2007 with the uh, idea and the purpose of becoming a uh, significant influencer in the Jewish community that serves Russian-speaking Jewish communities around the world. Uh, our principals, all of whom have become successful in their lifetime, um, have been philanthropic before that. And all of them, by the way, were born in the former Soviet Union and uh, grew up uh, similarly to how I grew up in the conditions of the state anti-Semitism of people around us using the word Jew as a way to insult you rather than a way to command you. Uh, and they've, at some point, uh, looked around themselves and saw that they're surrounded primarily by people who share the same background with them, who are Russian-speaking Jews, who have, in most cases, overachieved in life. And that the phenomenon of Russian-speaking Jewry in late 2000s was becoming, in a way, a group at risk since it wasn't just assimilation that was uh, that was a challenge but also the fact that with uh, immigration to from the former soviet union to a number of different countries including israel 
United States, Canada, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, have actually split this group and put additional tensions on the group's sense of its identity. That was also further complicated by the fact that despite the tremendous generosity of the American Jewish community, of the Canadian Jewish community, of Jews around the world, of the state of Israel, uh, Russian-speaking Jews were faced with significant troubles uh, upon entering their new homelands. Uh, and whether those troubles were simply around the adjustment of the first generation, or they were around integrating into the Jewish communities around them, there were still troubles and the language, the common language was not established. With all the good intentions, unfortunately, uh, neither side really knew at the time of mass immigration or mass aliyah as to how to communicate with each other and how to benefit from each other's understanding of Jewish identity, Jewish culture, Jewish heritage, and instead quite often was focusing more on the differences rather than similarities and not in a good way. So as they were philanthropic individually, they realized that they're not being as systemic in their philanthropy as they are in their business. Being quite analytical, it occurred to them that if they have a recipe for success in business, why not use a similar recipe in philanthropy, or at least to get it going? So they decided to professionalize and form a foundation. And they also decided that it's very important to give a foundation, a very specific, and probably in the eyes of many, very narrow mission of strengthening Jewish identity among Russian-speaking Jews around the world. And we're now currently talking about around 3 million people who were either born in the former Soviet Union or whose parents were born in the former Soviet Union. That includes. Jews actually living currently in the absolutely that in includes the that includes anyone who fits that into that definition, regardless of where they live today. And we can talk about demographics a little bit later. But for the purposes of this of your question, uh, they've immediately recognized that in order to achieve success, they need to act in three regions where Russian-speaking Jews live. Uh, in highest numbers, so to speak. And so that was more than a quarter of the Jewish people. I'm sorry? Around a quarter of the Jewish people. It's very close to that. I mean, the, the, the trouble of it is that in, um, as we all very well know, uh, counting Jews. It's always difficult. And counting Russian Jews is impossible but, but for a variety my, my of reasons. My point is that this is not a population that can be written off. Of course. So, and, and just in terms of distribution, Three million Jews, roughly, are most probably in Israel, where uh, where stats uh, numbers are kept more diligently, given the Ministry of Absorption, Aliyah, and Absorption. Uh, so we probably have around a million people living in Israel, uh, first and second generation. First and second generation, correct. We do not we do not include third generation. First and second generation. There's also a very interesting phenomenon in Israel called Generation One and a Half, which is a whole separate conversation. Right. And it's becoming more and more, uh, more and more influential in all spheres of life in Israel, in uh, in the U.S. and in North America as a whole. We're probably looking at anywhere between seven fifty and nine hundred thousand, uh, depending on different numbers uh, that you hear. Anywhere between two hundred and fifty and four hundred thousand still remain in the territories uh, of the former Soviet Union. There's around two hundred thousand or so in Germany. And then you take it from there, including UK, which is continuing to grow, including Australia, New Zealand, as I mentioned, 
But sometimes it's fascinating um, to learn where else Russian-speaking Jews might find themselves. Uh, one of uh, more interesting projects in the community is Limud FSU, Limud specifically, for those who come from the former Soviet Union. And the first European Limud FSU held uh, in uh, 2018 actually had some people register who, sh who's, who said that their place of residence is Slovenia and Albania and Bulgaria and so on and so forth. And so it's, and you have it in small numbers all over. Yeah. And then, and then there's people that are simply not counted. I remember when I was in Montreal, we quote unquote discovered that there were probably 15,000 Russian speaking Jews in Montreal. And the more you keep digging, the more you keep finding until that some estimations are up to 50,000 Russian speaking Jews in Canada, correct? In Canada, more than that. In, in Montreal. In Montreal, yeah. But uh, what's interesting is that there's also a sort of historical reasons for that. Russian-speaking Jews lived through 70 years out of, of communism, out of which much was, uh, was under the auspices of state-sponsored anti-Semitism, which right. means every census that existed, uh, many people decided to find a way not to identify themselves as Jews. And quite a few has carried that mm, stigma with them as they came mm, to America or, uh, or to Canada and therefore don't want to identify on the official census papers. Works slightly differently, as you know, in Canada with state statisticians and so yeah. on and so forth. But in America, without a doubt, it's the community that doesn't register on the radar through censors, nor we believe it is correctly counted through most population studies. Right. As in a way, the community is different the way it identifies itself. And certainly in larger generation, the question whether you are orthodox, reformer, conservative, takes on whether you're Russian Orthodox, <laughs> right. whether you have reformed your thinking, or whether you are conservative politically kind of a question rather than what we all think. Right, right. Very interesting. And, and um, go back for a minute to the idea of generation one and a half. What does that mean? Well, um, it's an interesting concept. When you're looking at immigration and, and the, uh, if you try to identify the trends, of especially behavioral trends within uh, immigrational generations. You find rather quickly that those who have been fully educated in the countries of their birth before they immigrated behave differently than those who have, let's say, only grew up to the age of 12 and 13 and have not graduated from high schools. Since they have not been affected, the first generation has not been affected by the educational system of their new homeland. Right. They tend to carry with them more of a tradition, more of a perception of how their identity is formed, more of a uh, sort of a societal behavior than they carry with them than those who have not. But those who were born in their new country, so the second generation, right? Yeah. They also are very different from those who have gone through, let's say, several grades of middle school before coming into high school, so on and so right. forth. So th this generation one and a half, especially in, in Israel, kind of organized. They formed an organization, not even one, but one very significant organization that is doing a lot of things in the community to help that generation continue to be connected with their roots while being fully integrated in the Israeli society. They went as far as they have a lobby in the Knesset. Wow. And they were actually successful 
in instituting the new year, and we don't mean Rosh Hashanah here, the new yeah, year as a Novigod. Right, Novigod as, as the holiday in Israel. And, you know, now you have uh, Israeli government officials celebrating that, especially in advance of elections. That, that's fascinating. And, and in fact, it, it sort of highlights that Russian-speaking Jews have so many layers in their identity, right? Oh, like, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Also, don't forget that it's a term, it's a misnomer in a way, because it also now includes people who might not speak Russian or might right. not speak Russian well. Correct. However, for the lack of the better term, and there have been a lot of discussions in the field uh, about what that is there a replacement? Is there a better way to describe and define uh, this particular community? And I don't believe anybody has been able to identify who certainly haven't been. But it also includes people whose backgrounds and whose heritage is very, very, very. Right. So someone who grew up in Moscow in an Ashkenazi Jewish family would be very different from someone who grew in Uzbekistan in a Bukharian family or in the mountain Jewish family in Georgia, as they call themselves, Gorsky Jews, right? And now lately with an onset of some of the uh, some of political events, especially in 2014 and after that, there has been an also a very interesting way that those who come from Russia and from Ukraine actually look at their past and at the current of their former former countries. So something that happened with with Jews was that being sort of uh, or having multiple identities in a way gives you a different perspective on society. You start at some point, you have so many layered identities that you start looking at society a little bit as an outsider. And by doing that, you can actually see some things that the natives can't see. I mean, I'm sure it happens to you. We're both immigrants, so we see you know, certain things that people that grew up in this country don't see. Do you see that? It's a very interesting question. I would tend to think that this is more of an individual perception rather than a communal perception. And I think it would depend specifically on individuals uh, and the way their own personal uh, life stories have evolved and how they actually, how observant they actually are to things around them. So to generalize is a bit hard, but what I would say uh, that certainly those who grew up in the former Soviet Union and who remember uh, what it means to live under that regime, take a certain um, development in communal and in political arena in a, very, uh, in a very specific way. They base it on the experiences that they have had personally or perhaps their parents and their grandparents had. It's uh, very interesting. We uh, recently, as you know, helped create a three-series documentary of Russian Jews, which I'm very happy to report have had now 5 million views on, on, wow. on YouTube, which is a fascinating number and something well beyond. Any idea but who who is watching it? It's, 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 it's hard to say. We do know that the pre- Obviously, young, more than the Russian-speaking well, Jews that are in the world, unless the, some of them are watching it twice. Well, first of all, it's three films. Oh, okay. Secondly, the way uh, online statistics for video viewing goes, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that each of those views correspond to a person viewing the whole thing. They might have come back and so on and so forth. Uh, and it is very clear that it's not just Jews who are watching it. 
and certainly not just Russian Jews. As a matter of fact, even though most of those views come from the version of the film, which is not subtitled, uh, there's still quite a significant number of people who have watched it with English subtitles and also with the uh, Hebrew subtitles, which we've created specifically, uh, specifically for those audiences. So what was interesting to me, among other things that we've heard from people who saw the film, and there was a lot of conversation and disagreement, which is great, of course, uh, around uh, the film in general, the position that the author of the film took. What was interesting to me is actually the reaction from those who are in their uh, late teens and early 20s who live in America and how they've seen pieces of history that their parents did not recreate for them and how they were learning it and actually able to connect some of the events that unfolded over there to events unfolding today. Interesting. And, and um, you mentioned the people that grew up you know, in the former Soviet Union. And now the Soviet Union has been now not in existence for, what, 25 years? Well, this, more, this will be the year of the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And therefore, right. and 20 the Soviet... years since the collapse of the former so, Soviet Union. Right. So, you know, and, and there is that, that uh, Midrash that says it's easy to take the Jews out of Egypt. It's not easy to take Egypt out of the Jews. And I relate to that because having grown, having grown up in a dictatorship, I find that I still have a lot of reflexes, a lot of elements of that. You know, I see a policeman and I still, you know, feel a, feel a shudder. Or even like, Absolutely. And, and instinctively, I would cross the street. And I live in New York City where the police is, in most cases, helping you. So do you, do you see some of those of the Homo Sovieticus, in a way, still, um, still present, sort of individually in people and as a community, collectively in people? So if Homo Sovieticus is a species, I'm going to go for a subspecies, which would be Homo Hebraicus Sovieticus. <laughs> right. That's a very different term in its own right. Absolutely. I actually think that it's going to take more than 40 years in this particular right. case. And uh, I'm not so sure whether you can take it all out of those who are like me or like you, Andres, and you write about policemen, and we certainly, many of us, if not most of us, continue to experience this on occasion. It's very interesting how it plays out in terms of the relation of uh, former Soviet Jews to the organized Jewish community. Uh. And that's one of the pieces that we found to be uh, among more challenging in our work. The whole sense and an understanding of communal activity in the former Soviet Union was by order. Uh, this is not something that you wanted to do. Of course. This is something that you were made to do. Right. The whole concept of Saturday, Shabbat in a way was celebrated funny, yeah. if you think about it, because during the Soviet Union, the only thing that made Saturday special for you was that they could uh, demand that you go and help a certain collective farm somewhere, or you can go and help a certain warehouse or do some free work. And that was a good thing in a way in the eyes of the Soviet society. So it's a way, uh, it's a way to look at it. But if we were to go back to sort of a uh, communal attitude, many communal organizations, if not most, are built around the sense of uh, collective effort or collective goal. And this is something that for Soviet Jews was, Extraordinarily counterintuitive 
to be a part of. And what about your own personal journey? Did you, when you were studying in Moscow High School, uh, did you have any inkling that you'd end up doing what you're doing now, working for the Jewish people and with Jews? I didn't have that inkling about a month <laughs> before I started working for Genesis Philanthropy Group. I was always active in the community, but I never considered a professional uh, so back in, career. Back in Russia, you were active? Here, in America. In Russia, it's, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a different term. We have, to my generation, being active took on a lot of different forms. And obviously, there was an extraordinary group of people who were uh, brave beyond any definition of bravery that one can come up with. And I'm talking about uh, refusing the, the Sharansky, the Edelsteins, and uh, many others who have actually given years of their life to ensure that we have the freedom to be the Jews we want to be now and today. And uh, one of the goals of our generation, I believe, is to make sure that the memory and the legacy of their generation is remembered forever. We, however, uh, grew up, and I, I entered the university in 1984, which was before right. Gorbachev. Even. Right. That was right? the beginning of... Uh, right before 1985, right? So, and the way we had it set up, and it's very interesting, uh, we had to take four exams. Uh, three of them were verbal exams, which means that you were completely, or it's two or three, but in my case, it was three. You could be completely at the mercy of whoever is... Uh, whoever is you're talking to. And then one, the last one in my case was a composition. So you had to write an essay. You were given three or four hours. Don't remember exactly when you had to write an essay. And I did. And what I wrote in my essay uh, was something that uh, made my mom literally cry because in her mind, I was inconsiderate or at least not careful enough. And I quoted the likes of Boris Pasternak and Josef Mandelstam, who were not specifically uh, very popular, let's right. say the least, by the Soviet regime back then. But what was interesting that even in 1984, as the last uh, significantly authoritarian Soviet leader was literally dying, that was still something that was okay. Uh, and that was, to me, the first sign that the things might have been happening. Right. But on the other hand, back then, there was no official recognition of religion even being okay. So uh, for those who have been to Moscow, it's no secret that the, that the central choral synagogue, Moscow choral synagogue, uh, is located right in the middle of Moscow, not too far from Kremlin, in a very picturesque uh, location, kind of on the hill a little. And what happened there during Jewish holidays is that young people just like myself would go there on that street and would literally hang out on the street, meet other young Jewish people, talk, celebrate the holiday in the way we can, and then be chased by the police <laughs> out of there. And if you were arrested, you would have been thrown out of the university right. without a doubt. And yet for some reason, we found, many of us have found a way over there. So for me, it was uh, natural. I grew up in a family in which Nobody ever hid from anyone that we were Jewish. Uh, I actually have recollections of my grandfather uh, at home wearing a kippah, uh, and we're talking about into early 70s. He died when I was just a few years old. 
Uh, my mother shared with me early on the stories of my grandparents and great-grandparents, which were very loaded, let's say that way, right. Jewish stories. And my father didn't. And I only learned the stories of my father and his family in a very interesting way uh, much later. But many people who grew up alongside with me, many families have decided, um, and that was totally okay and is totally okay, they decided to use a loophole here and there as to not to be identified as Jews, as you know, uh, Andres, uh, in Soviet passports. You have there was line number five, which nationality said... Nationality. Or ethnicity, right. Yeah. You're right. It's a, it's a better word. And, Jew, and being Jewish was considered to be an ethnicity. And that's another interesting, interesting topic, right? So they decided to do that. They opened doors for them, but they had to kind of carry it with them. And some did it, uh, some did it willingly, some did it begrudgingly, but many people did that. That wasn't the case for me. So for me, it was always very clear who I am and what I was. And uh, my father, it cost him his career, but it didn't cost him his freedom like it cost others. So, you know, you, you mentioned this, this idea of Judaism in, in the Soviet Union being an ethnicity or a nationality. And in my uh, interaction with, with, with Russian Jews in, in Russia, in Germany, and in the States, I see that the content of Jewish identity is not necessarily a religious one, but more of a national, cultural, you know, a sense of identity that doesn't necessarily relate to religious practice. And it strikes a chord for me because I, I grew up in the same way. I grew up in a community that was very Jewish, but was not religious. And two things. First of all, that creates a disconnect with the American community that it's still mostly defines Judaism as a religion. And secondly, it is in a way a wasted opportunity because the way of connecting to Judaism through cultures, through other cultural elements, language, I mean, the Russians, Russian Jews, a lot of them speak uh, Yiddish still. So, so those things are lost because our community is not really set up to leverage them. We try to adapt the Russian Jews to the American way of being Jewish, but we're not necessarily enriching our way of being Jewish by taking in some of the elements of Russian speaking Jews bring. It's a very interesting way of looking at it, and I would agree with you. Uh, historically, actually, the uh, largest wave of Jewish, Russian Jewish immigration into the uh, United States and Canada, which would be exactly when the Berlin Wall fell and then the collapse of the former Soviet Union on the, edge of, on the verge of the 90s. It was actually worse than that. Uh, the efforts of uh, organized American Jewish community, as I said, with all the good intentions, actually led to completely opposite results. Uh, it appears now that the American Jewish community was not quite prepared to how Soviet Jews would look. There were a lot of people that still had a perception without generalizing, but still had a perception that they would receive um, many people who would be more reminiscent of Pevye. Their own grandparents. Than the, right, yeah. their own grandparents. You're absolutely right. That's a great way of putting it. They got it. 
something absolutely opposite. People who came were not observant, with the rare exceptions. People who came did not have large families and had one child or two children, very rarely three, really rarely three. People who came were all educated, and people who came came from urban areas rather than rural areas. It was a completely different uh, aspect. And on top of it, you're right. The perception was they'll come here for 70 years. They didn't know what it means to be Jewish. And we will open our doors to our synagogues. We open doors to our schools. We open doors to our uh, communities. And they will come and they will celebrate the power and the joy of Judaism. And we will be one big family. And unfortunately, that's not how it worked. And that's not how it happened. As a matter of fact, uh, among former Soviet Jews, there were many who actually felt very proudly Jewish, just in a different way. Right. We had to work hard for our Jewishness. Right. We had to seek opportunities to feel Jewish in most unusual places. We looked at the question whether you can be Jewish alone in a completely different sense. You go to a museum and you go through a museum, fine arts museum exhibit, and you look at the paintings, trying to identify Jewish elements in them so that you can connect with the particular writer, the particular artist. So it was that. You read a book and you're trying to see if a certain character was a coded uh-huh. Jew. And there was a messages that were coded as messages of Jewish values and so on and so forth. It was a completely different paradigm of what it means to be Jewish. And yes, you're right. It carried through generations as sort of an ethnicity and a heritage and therefore connection to uh, historical elements and to cultural elements are significant. The question that we're asking ourselves today, and I believe that's the one that you're raising as well, is whether the experience of working with the Russian-speaking Jewish community can actually be helpful now in a climate where there is a significant number of young Jews, young American Jews, who are becoming in some way more like Soviet Jews were before, without a particular connection to religious uh, affiliation. I personally have no doubt. It will be a very big miss opportunity if we don't leverage the presence of people that already identify with Judaism as a culture, uh, and we use that to inform our own Jewish experience that is demanding that. In the Pew Report, you know, there's many ways of reading it, and people have interpreted it in different ways, but one thing is clear. Uh, you know, Jews are more likely to go to a Jewish cinema festival than to synagogue. They, you know, 30% of the Jews say they have no religion. Well, if religion is the only thing there is, so we will lose them. If there are other ways of being Jewish, uh, we it's not a it's not it's not fatalistic that we will lose them. We may still to uh, have them in the in the community living fully, you know, meaningful Jewish lives. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, and that's I think is one of the reasons why um, some projects have been a runaway success in the Russian-speaking Jewish community. Uh, let's take uh, PJ Library for a second. Home libraries have always been a point of pride for Russian-speaking Jews. Some of that, right? And that was part of it as yeah. well, and that was. You know, that carried some risks with that. Right. And, uh, but even beyond that, just regular, I mean, 
we stood in lines for hours to buy a book right. or to replace actually one kilo of recycled paper for a book. That was <laughs> part of our upbringing. Uh, so it was no secret to us that once this project uh, can adapt uh, to, to, to a way to how it should work with the Russian-speaking Jewish community, it will be a success that it is. And uh, it's fascinating what's happening now with it being successful both in North America and in Russia. Um, we now have Russian-speaking families in North America asking for PJ Library books in Russian language. And by the way, the uh, organization is now starting to provide them. And you have Jews living in Russia asking for English language PJ Library books because they would like to teach their children English on the basis of Jewish books or Jewish texts in that sense, right? So that's very interesting. Moshe House is another example. Because it was such an open understanding and interpretation that you can build your own Jewish community in a way that you would like to build it, it became a success. And now uh, there are um, over 20 Russian-speaking Moshe Houses all over the world, including places like Australia and Germany. Do you, do you feel that, you know, regardless of how hard it was in Soviet times, is there an element of nostalgia among Russian Jews? Is there something in that life that people miss? <laughs> I think only when they are faced with uh, personal and economic trouble. I think when people are having trouble make it in making it uh, in America, they turn back and they say, well, during Soviet times, right. or at least guaranteed that, whatever little it was. I don't think it goes beyond that. People suffered and struggled significantly. And uh, there might be a little bit of that in the older generation. Right. I'm, I'm nostalgic, for example, of the fight. Like we were, you know, we were fighting against a military government. It was tough, but it gave me a sense of purpose that, you know, it was very unique to that time. And sometimes I look at it, with, wow, those were interesting times. I think sometimes it might manifest itself also, uh, come to think of it, when parents are looking at the education that their kids are getting. Right. Because Yeah, during those times. <laughs> and the books, I even catch myself, frankly, as much as I try to be mindful of that and careful of that. Yeah. I catch myself saying, well, by your age, I've already read this, this, and this, right? But Yeah, but you, you weren't allowed to go to the cinema anyway, so you had to And the be. whole point, and I think it's true for anywhere in the world, right? Because our generation uh, grew up and there were many less things available to you, to your point. And then the choice was based on the best available items in front of you, and quite often it were the books rather than Soviet television. And just for a second, think about what identity means and how it can be represented in a sort of oversimplified geometric way. Russian-speaking American Jews essentially have an identity which can be represented by a triangle. In each corner, you can picture like, Jewish, Russian, and American, the three corners. And the identity is somewhere in the middle. And the reality of it is, that if you take one of the corners out, the entire identity is going to collapse, or at least it seems to be at the moment. Now, we don't look at it at the corners, we look at it at the sides, 
And as far as we're concerned, our work is focused on making sure that people are gravitating towards the Jewish American or a Russian Jewish side, not a Russian American side. Right. But it still exists. And that's yeah. what assimilation looks in the community. Now, because of my experience, I would have expected Russian Jews to be more progressive than conservative, more liberal than, than right-wing. Because, you know, because I grew up in the military government, uh, I sort of, by reaction, became much more progressive, you know, espousing that, you know, what is called today, you know, progressive. Not center, but, you know, leaning that way. Yet, you know, and you'll know the statistics better than I, and I think that in the Russian Jewish community, it's actually different. Uh, people tend to be more conservative, uh, to espouse more right-wing views. Why do you think that is? First of all, correct me if this is a mischaracterization. I'm sure it's a generalization for sure. Without a doubt. Yeah. It is a generalization across the community, and it's certainly a generalization across generations, and the picture in different generations looks different in the Russian-speaking Jewish community as well. I think we sometimes lose sight of what we mean when we say right-wing or progressive. Many Russian-speaking Jews vote on uh, in different elections with Israel at the center of their decision-making. And they choose candidates who, in their opinion, are more pro-Israel and are going to be better friends of Israel. And whichever way different political, uh, different politicians, different candidates are able to articulate their message, quite often ends up that the ones who are articulating their message of a more stronger pro-Israeli support end up with more of the vote from Russian-speaking Jews. Uh, and I guess the reality of the last several years is that it is the uh, Republican Party that often speaks more to them on that matter. And that's how you end up doing it. In terms of progressive issues, I think one needs to be conscious of the generational memory of uh, living under the rules of socialism in the country which also rejected you while you lived there. And that generational memory is significant when people are uh, trying to process some of the messaging politics, right. that policies that have been suggested by uh, candidates to consider themselves progressive. Which number do you think is greater? The number of Russian-speaking Jews who live in New York or all of Jews, let's say, in the United Kingdom? Oh, I think the former, for sure. There are 300,000 Jews in the United Kingdom. There has to be more than 300,000 Jews in uh, Russian-speaking Jews in New York. In New York. In the New York area, right? The right, the tri-state area, right? Yeah. The, the, the greater New York, no, as no, we would call it. No doubt in my mind. I mean, what would be depressing to see is the affiliation proportion of each population. Well, the UK community, uh, as you very well know, is significantly more affiliated than just about any of the large Any of the American communities, but on top of that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, affiliation aside, the pure numbers, which is where we started, uh, once we kind of came to 
grasp of it really striking. First of all, there are no other city in the world in which even a close number of Russian-speaking Jews reside uh, as, as New York. None. But the numbers are striking. There are more Russian-speaking Jews in New York than all of Jews in South America. There are more Russian-speaking Jews in New York than all of Jews in Canada. All of Jews in Canada. Yeah. There, there, is more, there is more numbers that you can uh, present in such a way as to drive at what this community is. And to your earlier point, we, I think after 25 years, the organized American Jewish community is getting a sense of fatigue of trying to engage those who came from the former Soviet Union. And I think that's a big mistake. Right. And I think that mistake is going to be felt for generations to come if it is not correct. And that's what I said at, at the, the beginning. At the beginning, right? that it's not a population that you can write off. Nobody, nobody would say, oh, you can write off all the Jews of Britain. No. And, and, yet we, and then people, don't, they don't say it, but sometimes we act as if we can write off oh. hundreds of thousands of Jews. That, that, uh, Without a doubt. But sometimes it gets difficult. We, we work with Russian-speaking Jews across the globe at this point, wherever they are. But look how different they are. We, we keep, throughout this entire conversation, we're kind of generalizing, focusing a bit more on American Russian-speaking Jewish community. But if you take it wide, all, in, all of the Jews in the former Soviet Union are Russian speakers. So essentially, everyone, every Jewish person who is there is a target audience for our work and a part of this conversation. In Israel, Russian-speaking Jews represent a sizable minority among the majority population in the country, since Jews are a majority right. in Israel as of today. In America, it's a minority of a very small minority of a population in the country. It's a, it's a concentric circles of minorities. And I assume that if you are specific groups of Russians, right. Jews, that you were saying before, Bukharan or whatever, you're even a fifth concentric circle of minority in America. And the most fascinating way this argument works is Germany. In Germany, Russian-speaking Jews are majority among Jews and minority among Russian speakers. Uh -huh. Since Germany has yeah, the resettled the, the Volga Germans and also a significant number of ethnic Russians. And yet, even in Germany, a established community, which at the time when Soviet Jewish immigration started, there was only 17,000 people. And remember today, yeah. there's around 200,000. The 17,000, still their initial reaction was, let's try to integrate 200,000 or whatever, 180,000 that were coming within our 17,000 and show them the way. The process of integration can only be successful if it is bi-directional in nature. To your point, the thing that the attitude that made Jews great and made Jews survive is how can we learn from each other, not what we can teach you. Thank you so much to Ilya Salita. And you can learn more about Ilya's work with the Genesis Philanthropy Group at gpg.org. In a moment, we'll preview next week's episode. But first, thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, guest ideas, questions, runs, suggestions, whatever you want to tell us, please write to us at podcast at jfunders.org. Keep up with the world of the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoidi. Next week, we'll talk to Rabbi David Wolby, the senior rabbi of Sinai Temple in LA and a renowned author, columnist, and speaker. Every rabbi who speaks about politics from the pulpit, they basically have a Democratic or a Republican synagogue. And I think that that's a bad way to have a synagogue. Be sure to subscribe in your podcast app to catch that episode. I leave you with this thought from Gertrude Stein. If you are too careful, you're so occupied in being careful that you are sure to stumble over something. So take it from me that I stumble over everything. Don't be too careful. Keep giving and join us next time for What Gives.